the thing that uh you know that the subway does is it just it just tears like three hours out of your day we'll just crumple that time up into an unusable wad and and just set it on fire and off it flies um into pollution and you know and so having these little notebooks was a way to grab little things that was you know something i guess i did and then the other one is uh that i've had going for a long time is advice column and i've got like four or five moleskins of advice that uh you know just a lot of life advice but but also a lot of writing advice too hey poets and poetry lovers welcome to having a coke with you the poetry society of new york podcast sponsored by the radio drama network I am so excited to introduce this guest on today's episode. Matthew Yeager's poems have appeared in Sixth Finch, Gulf Coast, Bat City Review, and elsewhere, as well as Best American Poetry 2005 and Best American Poetry 2010. His short film, A Big Ball of Foil in a Small New York Apartment, was an official selection at 11 film festivals in 2009 and 2010, picking up three awards. Other distinctions include the Barthelme Prize in Short Prose and two McDowell Fellowships. The former curator of the long-running KGB Monday Night Poetry series, he has worked in the New York catering industry for 13 years in various capacities. Truck driver, waiter, sanitation helper, sanitation captain, bartender, bar captain, and lead captain. A native of Cincinnati, Ohio, his interests include 18th century American history, finger picking, the Cincinnati Bengals, and creative carpentry. His first book is Like That from Forklift Books. Matt is hilarious, humble, and one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my entire life. The first time we ever met, we talked over a campfire for about an hour about the similarities between football and Roman poetry, and I think he's the only person in the entire world I could have that conversation with. But I gotta say, this conversation today might just eclipse this one. I hope y'all enjoy! So the first thing I asked Matt, as I ask every guest in this podcast, is what's your poetry origin story? How'd you get into this little thing called poetry? take a listen. You know, I guess some early positive experiences of poetry that, that date all the way back to high school. You know, I, the first thing that I encountered uh, in poetry was that uh, you could make one in a much shorter amount of time than it took to make, say, a, a whole paper and uh, a whole essay. And I had a, a magnificent English teacher two years when I was in high school. His name was Mr. James Downey. He was born in, I believe, the 1920s, uh, maybe early 1930s. And he looked old by the mid-1990s when I had him. He was a great big man. He dressed in tweeds. And uh, much of his face had been removed uh, due to a jaw cancer. And his fingers um, would curl up. Uh, unless he wrapped them with uh, all of these rubber bands to keep them kind of, you know, outside. So he was, he was a, a visual spectacle. And uh, all of the coolest kids in the in St. Xavier's freshman class took Mr. Downey. Mr. Downey gave us the option of um, writing a poem instead of writing a paper, and uh, and to uh, I took that option out of you know a spirit of curiosity and laziness and uh and that was the the highest grade that i ever got off of him and so that that gave me a very positive experience of poetry and the, the sort of way that it could 
I don't know, the way that it could go from non-existent to there and good um, in such a short amount of time. I went to Butler University, as you know, I, um, you know, because I, I had planned, I, when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be a, a mechanic and an, an engineer of some, some sort. And uh, chemistry was really this, the subject that I, that I was really into in, in high school. And uh, I thought I would major in chemistry I had a really compelling English teacher in my senior year in, in high school as well. And it was enough to get me to, to flip a coin, and, uh, and, which I did. And, and it landed in a palm and I put it over onto my other wrist. I can remember doing it. And, uh, and it came up English. So, I mean, that was the benefit of, you know, I had a full scholarship to Butler. And so I felt free to major in something potentially that would be a financial albatross you know, or that, that wouldn't, that didn't necessarily have a, uh, as clean a transition into, into professional life as some other majors. And, uh, so at Butler, I, I saw it's once in the universe poetry situation, um, and had no way of knowing that it was a, a, a once in the universe poetry situation. And, you know, I think a lot of people involved with poetry know that, uh, you know, Ruth Lilly, the widow of, of Eli Lilly, gave a uh, hundred bajillion dollars, hundred million, I think it was to poetry magazine. I guess, you know, they've done a pretty good job at tapping that fund with a magic wand and growing it too. Um, but before they, you know, she was, you know, dumping money onto poetry magazine. She dumped a lot of money into Butler university, which was in Indianapolis where Lily pharmaceuticals based. So Butler had a, an outstanding uh, visiting writers series. And uh, there was a, a poet in residence at Butler named Fran Quinn whose sole job was to run the, this visiting writer series and then teach a one-one. And he had a gigantic budget and these incredible poets would come in. And I came to the conclusion that poets were the happiest people on earth. I mean, I remember seeing the way Seamus Heaney's eyes opened up when there was this, I mean, they had like a whole handle of Jameson and it was just this giant bottle remember his eyes getting big like being like oh wow you know that's sure a big bottle of <laughs> I don't know there but there was you were seeing it it, it, it Butler uh, poets um, who were treated in a way that they weren't usually treated and were bursting with gratitude as a result and uh, you know Fran was very honest with his students um, and he's honest in a way that, you know, really you only find, I think, on university playing fields and, and not really in, in university classrooms at this point, you know, which is a big reason why Fran's no longer in a university classroom. I think that uh, he, you know, the example of Butler made me assume that what was happening at Butler was having every, you know, 5,000 person liberal arts college all across the land, which it wasn't. What was happening there was special. Fran though he he let you know as a young poet that this is a long road i took it as you know i have a long runway you know a 20-year runway in which to you know build up enough speed that maybe i can get off the ground in, in the way that these great poets were off the ground but he uh i don't know he, he'd read those poems by rilke that really um speak to a young person and demand that you that you live differently you know, if, if you want to, you know, persevere in this, in this art, he was, uh, the thing about, uh, uh, you know, Fran was 
I was glad to have had him. And then I was extremely glad to encounter David Lehman when I encountered David Lehman. David's approach to poetry was so much more playful than than Fran. And, uh, and, and David is, you know, one of the great poetry omnivores. And I mean, he can he can read and appreciate language poetry, concrete poetry, romantic poetry, prose poetry. He can, you know, appreciate a, a, a tonal poetry like Ashbery's, you know, or a formal poetry like, like Haney's or Auden's. And the thing that that I liked about David was it wasn't that there were no poets that he that he hated or just didn't think were that good, but he was very keen to the, the best examples of of things. And his attitude towards a poem there was that the New York school way of, you know, where you don't want any sweat on it. You don't want, you won't want to be, you know, warm from your greasy, from, you know, your, your squeezing hand. You want poem to, to feel light, to feel fresh, to seem like it just fell out of you. And, you know, some of the anecdotes that you hear about, you know, Ashbury, when he's a young poet, Ashbury would say to a crowd at 70, like, oh, yeah, writing poetry for me is just like turning on a television. In, in when he was living in France in the, in the 50s, uh, in the early 60s, um, Marjorie said, you know, I'd leave for work in the morning, he'd be at the typewriter, and then I'd come back at the end of the day, and he's at the typewriter. And you just think, oh, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe they're only making it look easy. But, you know, still, if you're, if you're trying to make it look easy, it will, it will be easier than, you know, if you're just weighting the thing down with, you know, various forms of difficulty. And the thing with David as well is the, is the attitude of, I can always write a good poem. You know, maybe I cannot write the good poem that I, you know, so desperately want to write, but I can, I can write some kind of a good poem. When talking about the teachers that changed Matt's life, I was really interested in Fran, the professor who built this poetry landscape at a small school in Indiana, Butler University. He was clearly a very talented and demanding professor, and he impacted Matt so deeply. So I wanted to know a little bit more about Fran Quinn. So take a listen. You know, at Butler, they really, they were all really willing to to give you their time, you know, but Fran, he very much wedded an education in poetry with uh, personal challenges. My first interaction with him was before I had ever even met him and uh, or taken one of his classes. I told you this, it was, I was walking along the hallway on the third floor at Jordan Hall and, uh, and this old man with, um, you know, wearing a ball cap indoors and, uh, you know, is kind of walking down the hall towards me. And he kind of stops me and, and he says, hey, I, uh, I see you walking around these halls a lot. And uh, you've always got this look on your face, like, oh, you know, it's just like all wrinkled up and you're, like, you're scowling. And I just wondered, well, what the hell's your problem? Uh, I realized a, a bunch of years later, um, you know, not until I was 36, kind of what he was reacting to. And, uh, and it's been really, it was really troubling when I learned it. And, and it's been something that I've had to work on. And when I was 36, I remember because at that age I grew a beard, and uh, and I walked into this uh, bathroom uh, that I'd never been in, and uh, I was a catering captain. And that night it was at a hedge fund, so it was a really nice 
bathroom and I open the door and I see this man looking at me from about 12 paces, 12 feet away. And he's got a beard and a gray suit on. And, he, and as soon as he looks at me, as soon as I look at him, he scowls at me and I scowl back. And then I realized this is all in like one second that it was me. And, uh, and I was just, I had just been totally fooled like a, you know, a golden blue faced monkey or something, you know, what, uh, you know, by my own reflection in the mirror. But I realized I was like, oh my gosh, I tighten up my, I squinch up my face, even when wearing glasses, you know, which was related to, you know, being really nearsighted as a kid and always crunching up my face and squinting my eyes so that I could tighten things up that I was looking at from a distance. I had just never been able to see what it looked like in a mirror because how could you? You're looking from 20 inches away at your face under too strong light. And uh, so I just thought, oh man, this this, this makes sense. I've been walking around with Bob Gibson face. And uh, so I just thought, oh my gosh, I've had Bob Gibson face. But, you know, Fran Quinn was, was that kind of guy. And he so he wedded poetry to to personal challenge in a way that that was, I, I think, uh, unusual. You know, the good thing about Fran's vision of, you know, a, a life in poetry was that it involved professions that are no one's dream. And, you know, a lot of the poets that I remember liking a lot, they had a sort of other uh, professions in their bios. And if you look at the the biographies of poets, which are a great source of of information on on how poetry really is made, you know, someone like Robert Frost, I mean, the guy publishes, uh, you know, in one of the leading publications of his time in the in his mid twenties, enough to, you know, can give him a certain amount of self importance as a poet, you know, to think I will fight for my ability to do this, I will clear space for this. And then, you know, there's what, however many, two decades nearly, um, you know, between his first publication, I think he was in his early, uh, younger than 25, but, you know, it's, he's in the late 30s when A Boy's Will comes out. Frost was a draft burner, and, and I believe that in my whole heart. I mean, there's, it wasn't like the guy wrote some poems in his early 20s. I think that Robert Frost, um, the greatest lie he ever told was that he either got, either got a poem on his first try or didn't get it at all. <laughs> that implies that he he wrote you know sort of three of the greatest books of poetry you know of their time of any time you know in quick succession after having been stuck for a long time he was working on it all of the time and he was working on it in his mind um you know those poems were were in him On the subject of Robert Frost, the next question I asked Matt was about his gateway poet. Who was his gateway contemporary poet? How did he fall in love with this little thing called poetry? Take a listen. The gateway contemporary poet for me was Robert Haas. You know, I can recall Fran sitting in his office and reading uh, some excerpts from Sun Under Wood. And I just thought, man, I will do all kinds of shitty jobs to be able to do something like that someday and you know make the sequence of images that he made happen in my mind occur in somebody else's mind you know that was what i wanted and uh 
you know, I remember one of the poems Fran read was uh, Our Lady of the, the, the Snows. And that's a poem that, that I feel like I've, I've learned something about only in, in the last few months. Where to put the sentence accent in the final line, in the final moment of that poem, and how that final sentence accent, in a way, it changes the whole poem. Let me hear it. I, let's see if I know it. Our Lady of the Snows. In white, the unpainted statue of the young girl on the side altar made the quality of mercy seem scrupulous and calm. When my mother was in a hospital drying out from drinking at a pace that would put her there soon, I would slip in the side door, light an aromatic candle, and bargain for us both. Or else I'd stare into the day moon of that face and, if I concentrated, fly. Come down, come down, she'd call, because I was so high. And mostly, when I think of myself at that age, I'm standing at my older brother's closet, studying the shirts, believing I could be absolutely transformed by something I could borrow, and the days churned by navigable sorrow. What a fucking poem. Robert Hass, what a fucking but that last sentence accent, you know, and for years, I just, I would say navigable sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. No, you put the accent on the navigable, you know, that's, that's what's happening. So that's what sorrow kind of hit. But if you hit that nah, you know, a bit more, it's, it puts the emphasis on, you know, the navigability of sorrow. The fact that he's living to write and to tell. He gives some great examples. Hass has a great ear. I wasn't expecting to be talking about him so much, or even at all, really. But Hass, Hass has a great ear. And I mean, I love the example he gives in uh, one of his prose books, Little Book of Form, about the difference between, you know, the, the accent and like, who wants ice cream? You know, I do, I do. You know, say the little kids, or you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, like, I do. And, you know, one question could be answered with the, the word me. So you just put the emphasis on I, I do, I do. And, you know, and the other question, you know, the emphasis on, you know, do you assent? You know, so you, you put it on the, the fact that you do. You know, and so much of uh, the way that we make meaning in spoken English is with our sentence accents and, uh, you know, how we how we stretch them, how we how we pitch them. And when poems are able to communicate that, I mean, that's the nut inside the shell, uh, so to speak, when poems are able to strike very specific tones and do it just with words on a page. That's when I'm in awe. Yeah, Robert Haas always leaves me in awe. I mean, you know, former poet laureate, he was a Pulitzer Prize winner. I love and know lines on last spring, I think, out of all of Robert Hass's work the best. I'm not actually super familiar with Our Lady of the Snows. I definitely have to spend more time with it after this convo. But on first hearing, it's fantastic. It's incredible. The day moon of that face, I mean, that, I just thought, wow, that is such a perfect, perfect image. You know, and then Fran, of course, you know, he knew all these poets. So, you know, he talked about, you know, Bob Hass. Hass did a gig in Worcester, Massachusetts, I believe in the 1970s, where Fran then was, and Hass needed a new roof on his house. So he agreed to come and do this kind of visiting teaching gig. 
and a friend had never met him, um, but had had read, uh, you know, <clears throat> Field Guide and then Praise. I think it was after Praise that that Fran had him. And uh, Fran tells a story about he Fran was sitting up in his attic. He could see out the window. Pass went out for a walk, and when he was coming back, Fran just watched him, and it took him like a half hour, like walking up the street. He was just looking at everything, like looking at every tree, looking at every, the, the shapes of the gables, you know, <laughs> measuring their angles or turning all of this into perspective language in his head or whatever he was doing. You know, it was this little window view that Fran had and communicated of how this man wrote poems. And, you know, in that poem, you know, and there's some other, I used to know a bunch of Hass. I probably still know a, a lot. Um, but, uh, but Fran was, you know, not willing to just let me only memorize Robert Haas poems. So while you were just talking, I pulled up Our Lady of the Snows and you recited it perfectly, like to the T, there were no mess ups, which is so unbelievably impressive, especially considering that you memorized it, what? over a decade ago? Uh, I wanna talk about memorization for a sec. I come from a theater background, so memorizing poems as monologues kind of comes second nature to me, but what are your tactics for memorizing poems? How did you learn that Robert Haas poem? And how does memorization impact your knowledge of a poem? I, I think I try to memorize a line and then read the next line and then add it to the first line. And then I have two lines. And then I read the third line, try to memorize it. I would just try to get a couple of one line and then the next line and then the next line. Um, but you're, you're choosy about what you'll choose to memorize um, and you'll choose great poems. And once those great poems are in you, um, in your brain, uh, you know, they're always there. They're there even when you're not aware that they're there. You know, if you are, for instance, standing at a, at a window and, and a, you know, as the sun is coming up, and you see the light kind of streaking all of the twigs on this wintertime tree with, with dawn light, you'll, you might think of, you know, Elizabeth Bishop's Five Flights Up, or if you're walking to a particular rhythm, you know, something might stir in your mind. But mainly, it's, uh, it's a way that, that poetry, uh, the, 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 I guess one of the, the, the forms that, that poems take, the, 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 the form the content takes, um, when poems pivot, how they react to themselves. That is one thing that you internalize from memorizing poems. And the other is, is really, it's your, your own consciousness becomes, I don't know, a, 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 you know, a site where poetry evaluates itself. And I don't know, if, you, if you're a young poet, you, you, you write your poem, you, you say it aloud to yourself, and you're, you're aware that oh, this poem by Gwendolyn Brooks is much better than your poem. This poem by Robert Frost is much better than your poem. And, uh, and that's, um, that's okay. Uh, but I, I think that if you don't memorize poems, if you memorize no poems, I don't know. There's a reason that great poets, even of the 20th century, had many, many poems by memory. I mean, it's something that we have only recently stopped doing as a group of poets. Uh, Galway Cannell had an enormous memory of poems. Bly uh, had an enormous memory. Elizabeth Bishop could, you know, she was a, a you know, a human jukebox. 
uh, James Wright, um, you know, he was he was probably had probably the most legendary of of memories of the 20th century poets. And, you know, no surprise that, that, you know, Bob Dylan, who, you know, got to sit at James Wright's knee back when he was still Robert Zimmerman in Rochester, Minnesota. No surprise that that uh, that Bob Dylan, you know, himself actively cultivated that huge memory, you know, was vain about his memory. Ben Johnson was known in his own time for having a, a stupendous memory. The first time that any manual for writing poetry suggests that poets memorize is is uh, I believe it's uh, Pierre Ronsard, um, a French manual in the 16th century, because it's really the first time that you're entering the age of typography and, and you know, we're getting the stuff not directly into our ears, but translated through our eyes, played at a very different kinds of volume in the old audio player in the imagination or the audio imagination as, as Frost called it. So it's already, you know, age of typography begins and uh and somebody is saying hey you've got to you've got to memorize poems and you just learn so much about them so we've been talking about robert haas and gateway poets and memorization and i want to get even more microscopic this seems like the best time to get microscopic what are your favorite poems have you ever been in such awe of a poem that you tried to imitate it there's an effect in Eliot's proof rock that I admire so much and just was always so amazed by. And it's like how he could go from talking about, you know, in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo to, you know, the yellow smoke that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow fog that rubs its, et cetera, on the window panes, licked its tongue. It's like, how on earth does he get from where he is to this subject matter in the space of one single poem? And it's the freakiest key change that you could that you could ever conceive of, you know, rhythmic change, every change, every kind of change. And and I, I tell you, I had tried to artificially create uh, an effect like that at, at a few different points along the way. And then it, it, it ultimately, you know, the only time I've ever gotten something like that was in a, a, a poem called Sleep Mothers, which is in the, my first book. And and I just I just took a big chunk out and you know pulled two sections of the poem right next to one another and suddenly there was this this really strange pivot and uh, and i said oh that's how you do it you know you 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 erase your way into it it's the part that that where it's going along and then abruptly starts going in the in the hall clocks and the wall clocks and lot lot you know and it, it starts getting this uh like a rising rhythm instead of the falling rhythm and uh and it's but that's the moment in the poem where it's just talking about the clocks. It's not as good as, as Eliot's. I'd absolutely love to hear it. You know, so you can hear a little bit. Of, there's more of a falling rhythm in the first sections of it. Um, they're sleeping. The gray-haired mothers are sleeping in single beds and double beds and queen and king-sized beds in beds that they remake each morning on couches and hospital beds and beds they've owned for 20 years. They are sleeping like dolls inside dollhouses. As little girls, they played with dolls. Their eyelids are shut, they are sleeping. Their husbands are snoring, next to them snoring, down the hall behind closed doors, snoring in another city, snoring. On the hall clocks, on the kitchen clocks, on the clocks, on their nightstands, large and red numbers, silent. 
on the watches taken off and placed on the nightstands, on the special occasion watch in the jewelry box, on the inherited clock in a small house's nicest room, on the microwave clock visible from the table where the husband in a white undershirt smokes cigarettes and laughs to himself remembering football. In the wooden chair he always sits in, he can hardly walk. Um, that rhythm change was just the one that I was talking about where it starts doing the on the hall, on the hall clocks, on the kitchen clocks. As much as I love Sleep Mothers, my introduction to Matt Yeager was actually through The Best American Poetry 2005, in which his poem, A Big Ball of Foil in a Small New York Apartment was featured. I love that poem. It was described by Matt Yeager as an allegorical meditation on self-reliance, the inspiration of limitations, and the emotional strains, trade-offs, sorrows, and joys that come with executing any vision. And evidently, the world loves this poem as much as I do, so much so that a film adaptation of it was made. The 15-minute live-action short was an official selection at 11 film festivals in four countries in 2009-2010, garnering three awards. I asked Matt about the conception of that poem and how its reception impacted his life. Take a listen. Uh, the genesis of that poem, I remember it vividly. I was sitting in one of the carols at the NYU library. Anyway, I was working on the guts on it. And, uh, and I wrote a line, you know, something like I'd be, I'd be useless as a big ball of foil. And, uh, and the line fit nicely and it caused a, a, a ball of foil to appear in my mind. I thought I'll, I'll maybe try to give that a, a, a canvas to itself. And, uh, and I wrote about a one page prosy, almost Pessoa like version of the poem in the days after. And I did not feel I quite had it. And then and then I had a, a you know a simple idea um to to write it in the in the way that I wrote it and just to write a genesis of the ball and then the growth of the ball and and so on and so forth. So yeah, that was you know almost like a little lizard tail that I cut off of a of a sonnet and then grew a whole, you know, dinosaur out of. I've never used that analogy for it before, but that's the way that that poem happened. The ball of foil became a model for how I could write other sorts of poems. What is described in that poem uh, of someone who goes out and, you know, gets you know, wild foil, the sort that, you know, the, I mean, they're urban tumbleweeds, you know, the little scraps of foil that, that kind of whisk around catch sunlight. So somebody who's gathering these as he's moving through his daily errands and bringing them back and then adding them to a, a growing and growing hole, um, you know, but but gathering, you know, a, a, a brightness, a, a glinting thing, if you will. So I've done that for a while, that that sort of method. I mean, I think of it as as foil balling. I mean, and I, I just have I have some poems, you know, that have just been growing kind of in the background in the way that you 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 grow your change jar uh you know accidentally by by kind of emptying but you know that I, I've grown in moleskins over the years and I've published some sections of the one uh lead echoes and gold echoes over the years working in that way is something that that I took from the flow ball and it doesn't take any extra time that's what I like about it you know it's it's like wearing a hat with a feather in it while you're carrying a, a, a weight 
you know, <laughs> like you can still kind of work on the things that are that are really consuming you and also just flycatcher, you know, just grab some of the, the interesting butterflies that happen to, to blow through. The next thing I wanted to ask Matt was what he's working on right now. And is he still foil balling? Take a listen. You know, what I've been working on lately, writing kind of critical prose, um, mainly about uh, American football, um, which has been a lot of fun, you know, structuring an inquiry around uh, the development of you know, that game. But I've been working on... Um, you know, I need to, I need to, you know, finish editing my, my second uh, book manuscript. I, I looked through, uh, especially some of the later poems and, and it was, there was just a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, crumbs, crumbs that need to be swept. So I need to go through and, and do a little, a little bit of editing. And uh, I, I enjoy editing. Um, it's, it's very possible to, to make something worse when you're editing. If I'm editing poems to, uh, to say to submit them to something that's when i am at my worst and i just i'm just attempting to you know evaluate the poem um through the eyes of a person that that i i have never met and uh and i find myself making a lot of decisions that serve oh, i don't know the visual shapeliness of the thing on the page and uh and not um the the sound of the thing in the in the ear and Conversely, I find that I'm usually a, a, a much better editor of myself um, in the hours before giving a reading. It's as if the poem is playing in a, at a louder volume in my own mind, and I can kind of, I can finally, you know, hear it, if you will. I love to hear that, as reading poetry out loud is super important to both PSNY and our lovely sponsors, the Radio Drama Network. So we very much prioritize reading poetry out loud and poets who love to read poetry out loud. Uh, so do you have any, like, editing or writing advice for our audience? Yeah, it's almost like before before giving a reading, you can imagine or you're, you're able to imagine how your breath is going to fit into it. And uh, and maybe not so much if you're just you know, looking at your, your your words on the screen. And uh, although I, I love the word processor, I mean, you you're like a surgeon who can, you know, copy and paste three bodies of, you know, that you're about to work on and and then just, you know, do really create perform some really creative surgeries, which aren't ultimately destructive, uh, which cause no consequences. And sometimes you, you get a really interesting result. So that's part of the fun. And, uh, and also the, the ease with which you can cut things out and, uh, and you know, the ability to use, you know, the, it, I mean, it not only has sped up our, our, our ability to put words down on the page, it has, it has, you know, really amplified the power of the back of the pencil. That's the fun of working with poems is coming back to them, copy and paste it into a new doc and, and then just play with it and see if you get stuck someplace better than the place you got stuck the first time. You know, that's a way to do it. And a lot of times you'll know just what to do. I feel like if you're going to put four hours into a poem, the worst way to do it is to just sit down and put four hours into a poem. 
you know, sit down, put an hour into it. And then, you know, maybe in a year or six months or six weeks or however long, but, you know, then come back and look at it again, put another half hour into it, take some more time, you know, and in that way, you know, your eyes will be fresh for it every time you look at it. And, you know, and it will be a lot better than, than if you, you spend four straight hours looking at it. Cause if you're anything like me, I mean, I can spend two and a half hours writing something and then all of a sudden, you know, no word of it is surprising to you. You just start messing with it and pretty soon you trash the place. Okay, this is officially my favorite part of this episode, and I want to bring this back for any future seasons we do of this podcast, because I have never left so hard in my entire life. Uh, so Matt is definitely one of the most brilliant people I've ever encountered. And apparently when he lived in New York, he would carry around these little moleskins that he would write in on the subway, like poems, but also little pieces of advice. And just for y'all, here's some life advice fresh off of Matt Yeager's moleskin, what I'd like to call life advice with Matthew Yeager. Uh, uh, buy brown bath towels. Color coordinate your bathroom so that brown bath towels and hand towels fit nicely, or just don't give a fuck how the colors fit together. The brown bath towel can be deployed to soak spilled coffee, to corral a bloody nose, to absorb the mop water on a kitchen floor, the peach towel, the white towel. Perhaps you use these to dry the water off your freshly cleaned body, but who has room for so many towels? No sense in buying white bath towels, buy brown. Navy brown, navy blue, as I think I have mentioned elsewhere, is absolutely the worst sock color. Nothing is worse than stepping into a bright kitchen seeing that the black socks you've attempted to put on are in fact navy blue. Difficulty associated with putting on and taking off socks vanishes from human life, save for the obese at the age of about three or four. But this difficulty reappears roughly around the age of 30. If you're over 30, you agree that putting on and taking off socks is more difficult than it was five years ago. In five years, it will be more difficult than it is now. It is really better to put on and take off a pair of socks only once in a day. An adapter that transforms a three-prong grounded plug into a two-prong hot and neutral plug ought to be permanently on the end of your laptop cord, lest you be fucking annoyed at least once per week. I just go on, uh, you know, one needs as a writer to find only three examples of any phenomenon. For example, instances where a brown bath towel might be deployed to absorb what would stain a pastel towel to make any point any more than three. And in most cases, you'll eventually leave one example on the cutting room floor. The cutting room floor is an example of a space that is, to use monk's lingo, so like itself that it is symbolic. It connects to other creative situations. Where is a writer's, a word processor's cutting room floor? Is it pure ether, an actual disappearance, as when a text is highlighted and deleted? As a writer, particularly of poetry, it is in your interest to set up a cutting room floor at the bottom of your document. Think of it as a pan to catch drippings. Those drippings are potentially useful, particularly if you are working on, for instance, a group of sonnets that are all on one theme. These lines, loose, that can't find a home in a particular poem might and can become the cornerstone of a different poem, a new poem. When opening a carton of half and half, make sure you sniff it. There is nothing worse than ruining a whole cup of coffee so as to discover that cream is rotten. 
I love that so much. And please send me whatever life advice you have because I really need to internalize it. I'm gonna buy new bath towels after this. Um, so to end off this episode, I, I'm thinking about this. This this podcast is for poets and poetry lovers, but also poets to be. And we've been talking mostly at the interest of the poets and the poetry lovers, but I want to give some love to our poets to be. Do you have any advice for them or for young writers starting out? What advice do you have for poets to be? Any really young writer, I would suggest try everything. And because you, you don't quite know where you're gonna where your your home is gonna be and you don't really know what you're you're gonna be good at and so i did uh i wrote some fiction and i wrote some nonfiction, and i wrote some poems and the poems just i, I don't know i felt like it was i don't know like the difference between gasoline and kerosene or something it's just they were more volatile more explosive and uh, and more fun this has been an episode of Having a Coke With You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast. Thank you so much to Matthew Yeager for having a Coke with me today. Matt, let's bring back life advice with Matthew Yeager on every season of this podcast. And in all seriousness, thank you so much for being such a wonderful friend of PSNY for so many years. Thank you to the Radio Drama Network for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to our editor, Zebs Bard, and all the staff at PSNY for your incredible support. And most importantly, thank you to you all for listening. I wonder who we'll talk to next. Tune in every Friday to find out. <laughs>